Howdy folks, welcome to another Besides an On podcast. We have Monk up the stair and out the road. Hmm. That's always that's always a good start. Bedroom bound the new man. I, I can't get further than my chair. Right. Brutal. So we're stuck to this sort of semi-rubbish format of uh, 40 minutes or less. Right. So uh, it'll be a kind of a rush podcast, but I mean, 40 minutes is still better than a hustings. You Definitely. can still get more than two minutes. It's better, than three, it's better than three or four minutes per person right. per time, so it's all good. So on the line right now, we have Martin James Keatings. How are you doing, Martin? Ah, uh, you know, same rubbish, different day. <laughs> awesome, man, awesome. So, uh, well, Craig knows a bit more about you than uh, myself, but uh, what I'll do is uh, we'll go into your childhood just to start off. We'll uh, talk about, uh, what. so where were you born, Martin? Uh, I was actually born, believe it or not, about 200 yards from the Scottish Parliament. Uh, I was born in L.C. Ingalls in Edinburgh. Right. Uh, Although in my childhood years, I I lived uh, in Hoyken, the Scottish borders. Right, right. So where are you now? You're standing for uh, Fife, I I think. That's right. I live live in Kearney Hill on the outskirts of Dunfermline. Mm -hmm. And how how was your childhood growing up? What What was it like when you were younger? Ah, it was a it was a good childhood. Um, my mother was a a, a midwife, a G grade sister midwife at the Borders General Hospital. Mm-hmm. Before that, at the the Hague Maternity Hospital in Hoyk. Uh, my dad um, was uh, in charge of a, a fishery in the Borders, um, and also did a lot of gamekeeper work for the the Duke of Buccleuch and things like that as well. So. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, but yeah, very active childhood. Um, down in the borders, you know, um, you can do pr- pretty much what you want. You know, you, uh, going outdoors, walking, hiking, camping, general adventure, sports, all that sort of stuff. Um, and for most of my younger years, I was uh, involved in um, martial arts and karate. Okay. I got right up to first hand black belt. Uh, I was also an air cadet as well. Uh, ironically, and I should never admit to this, my squadron leader was none other than Michelle Ballantyne. <laughs> um, so I don't know who that is. Could you tell people who that is? Uh, Michelle Ballantyne would be a, a certain MSP in uh, Holyrood at the moment that was with the Conservatives that is now with another party that shall not be named. Um, she has some rather extreme views shall we say uh, mm. is probably the best way to put it uh, being polite um, mm. that I most definitely don't agree with so yeah she's definitely opposition to Martin oh yes yeah let's, yeah let's, we, just, let's just leave it there let, let's just let's just say that some of her views informed my views as I was growing up shall we say in other words I'm not going to believe in that sort of thing so yeah <laughs> so what was it that got you into politics what was there anything that happened during then that made you well apart from Michelle Ballantyne? Oh, I've been uh, I've been involved in politics since I was a kid. Um, Hoyk uh, is one of those areas that was massively and detrimentally impacted by the Thatcher years. Um, the borders relied on rail to get its wares in and out uh, from all because in Hoyk, its primary export was the mills. You know uh, the likes of Pringles. You know the the manufacturer for golfware and things like that. They were all based in Hoyk. So Hoyk was very much a mill community. It would get the um, the fleece from the the local farms. It would then process it, turn it into jumpers and knitwear and all that sort of stuff. Uh, there was other 
farm-like industries, uh, but they relied on the railways to get their goods and wares out because the only roads that really run to the borders are the A68 and the A7, which back then were absolutely atrocious. When the railway closed, it pretty much killed the local industry. Um, further cuts by the Tories to, to public services and things like that pretty much signed the death knell. And as people began to lose their jobs, they began to leave. Uh, as they began to leave, less money was being spent in the economy. Less money being spent in the economy meant less jobs because places had to close. And that started a downward spiral. So from the age of five, uh, my, my earliest engagement was me walking down Hoyk High Street with a placard uh, that me and my mum had put together that said uh, it was a, I still remember it to this day, it was a, a black coffin, shape of a black coffin, and it said on it, rest in peace, Hoyk dying due to Tory cuts. Um, and that was the, the, my first engagement with politics. My second one was Margaret Thatcher visiting Hoyk High Street, and she was, I was only about five years old, um, she was uh, in the back of the car with Dennis. Somebody threw an egg at her, missed her and hit Dennis. Um, and I was just coming out of Woolworths. There's a name that's long Please. forgotten. With my dad, about five years old. And uh, uh, I, I was holding my dad's hand to cross the road. And Margaret Thatcher's car went past slowly. And she turned. And she, my dad recalls the story because I don't remember this bit. But she turned and... She smiled at me and then she looked at my dad uh, and then realised that he was presenting a, a single digit from his hand, right. uh, <laughs> um, which could not be misconstrued as anything else other than an insult. Uh, she, she then proceeded to go down and the vitriol from that day always stuck with me as a kid. Um, she was absolutely hated. And of course, that informed the sort of policies that I looked at later on in life and things like that. Why exactly did was she so hated, uh, and I realised that ultimately her policies were what caused the demise of the trading industry, um, which actually in the end resulted in us having to relocate to Fife because my, my dad simply couldn't get work in the borders. Um, and when my mother retired because she's got MS, he became the primary breadwinner, so he had to move to Dunfermline in order to be able to get gainful employment and in order to, to for the family to survive effectively. And that's pretty much what that was pretty much my introduction to politics. Um, I, ever since, it's been a case of um, just my mother did a lot of work with us, even when she retired because of her MS from being a midwife. She went and she worked for the Citizens Advice Bureau for five years. Um, and she did a lot of charity work, including a, a well known campaign about uh, setting up uh, and providing medical services in Malawi. So I was really engaged with that. So it was a natural progression from that point um, when I eventually hit my own teen years and uh, the sort of social justice and uh, and that sort of thing. So You never joined the political party, did you, at any point? I was for a period a member of the Scottish National Party in, oh, right, the, run okay. up to two, in the run up to 2011. I was actually a member of the SNP. Um, but I, I gave that up when it became clear that we were going into a referendum purely on the basis that I wouldn't be a hypocrite when I turned around to people and says, listen, independence is not about the SNP. Uh, my first vote as a voter was actually for Labour because that was what you just did. The SNP wasn't big enough really to make a dent. Uh, and uh, we all remember in those days that, you know, there was a sort of a new hope sort of swung out 
in terms of new labor. Uh, obviously, that went the way of the dinosaur with Iraq yeah. and Afghanistan yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Um, so for, my first vote was ca- uh, cast for Labour and it was also my last vote for Labour as well. Thereafter, I voted for the Scottish National Party um, be- simply on the basis uh, of not just independence, but the fact that they were offering an alternative. Um, and fr- just sort of, you know, from that, the, there was a national progression to campaigning for independence and things like that as well. Uh, and that's what's led us to, to now, you know. So I presume the reason you never sort of went back to political parties after the referendum was similar to why you're standing as an independent. You like having your own thoughts and you like having a, being able to well, vote the way you want to vote. It's not so much being able to vote the way you want to vote. It's more a case of you have more latitude as an independent. You're not subject to a party whip. You're not subject to the rules of a party. Uh, and, and you are free to, to look at the material substance of policies, legislation, um, and indeed political commentary in general, and just sort of think to yourself, well, is this conducive for the people around me or is it not conducive for the people around me? And you can make your decision based on that. You know, you're not beholden to anybody. You owe nobody nothing. And at the end of the day, your decisions can be purely based on on the needs of the people around you. Uh, And I like that latitude. I mean, I've already managed to get two or three pieces of policy uh, into Parliament without being a parliamentarian because of that independence. Because I don't hold party colours, I'm not immediately perceived as a threat by opposition parties simply simply because of that. I, I can go to them, I can extend the hand of friendship. If it's slapped away, then fair enough, but they're more inclined to listen to you uh, from an independent standpoint. Uh, and, I mean, the, for instance, the Ford Rail Bank, which is one of my policies, I petitioned the Scottish Parliament in 2015. The fact that I was an independent allowed me the latitude uh, that brought with it consensus from all five parties at the Scottish Parliament for that policy. I mean, there's very few policies that go through the Scottish Parliament, or very few policies that are considered by the Scottish Parliament that have cross-party support like that. And I would never have been able to do that if I had been a member of the SNP because Labour, the Tories, the Lib Dems, they would have immediately perceived me as a threat. If I'd been a member of Labour, just the same, the SNP, the Tories, they would have perceived me as a threat. But as an independent, you have that latitude and you have that ability to, um, to, to, to try and build that consensus. In fact, one of the people that was most responsible for me becoming an independent was actually Margot MacDonald. And it was the word she said in the very first independence rally that happened in, in uh, Edinburgh way back when we first started campaigning. She says, as an independent, you get to be a friend to everybody. And that always stuck with me. Um, it's not just a case of being a friend. You, you, you can give praise and also crit- constructive criticism in equal measure by being an independent. So it, 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 it's a confluence of different things that, that it's great to be an independent. And I wouldn't want to return to party politics for exactly that reason, um, simply because it's, of the freedom. <laughs> it's very, very interesting to me that you brought Margot MacDonald and it's because of Margot McDonald has been mentioned on this podcast before, and it was by somebody who you seem to agree with quite a lot in the FCE. I think it was it the FCE, the hostings that you had, and it was uh, Bruce Henderson from Renew. You seem to keep going back and forth. And yes, I actually agree with him. 
Well, I'm going to return the favour and agree with him. So well, it's interesting that we... you both brought up Margot McDonald. That it was it was weird. Um, that hashtags I've got to admit. Um, yeah. Because they did the candidates in one order, and then the next set of questions they did it in backwards order. Um, so it was switching round. First he was agreeing with me because he was behind me, and then uh, in the next set of questions I was behind him, so I ended yeah. up agreeing with him. But it just goes to show. It doesn't matter if you're a member of a political party. If you can find consensus in the things that you do agree with, then things can be achieved. Mm. Uh, you can progress things forward. So, yeah, I mean, Margot was one of the great politicians in this country. Uh, yeah. And she, uh, she was, I, I have I never had the opportunity, sadly, to speak to her directly and interact with her directly. But yeah, she had the ability to influence people that she'd never met simply because of her words. She was what, particularly in the debates over um, assisted uh, is, diet. Yeah, stuff, yeah. yeah the, the bravery that she showed, considering her own condition um, and the words that she, she spoke in Parliament, literally made the hairs in the back of my neck stand up. She just had a way of cutting right through to it. And she had this amazing ability to be able to try and create cross-party consensus. So, yeah, I mean, she, even though I never met her, she has had a, a massive influence in the way I perceive politics, particularly now. You know, we need I think, more consensus. I think, because, I think because she sort of left as an independent, I can say this without uh, biasing who I'm going to vote for and say that it would be amazing if everybody in the Scottish Parliament was like her. Could you imagine how radically different the parliament would be? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, the problem we have, one of the greatest problems we have in Scottish politics is this tribalism is probably the word for it, that people vote against each other not because they disagree with the policy, but because they simply, yep. uh, they're an opposition party and they're whipped to do it. Uh, I would love to see the entire Scottish parliament being nothing but independence because consensus would be reached based on the empirical evidence and based on trying to find consensus in, in the different views in Parliament. Um, and Margot was amazing at that. That's That was one of her defining characteristics. She had this ability to cut right through and to find consensus where other people couldn't uh, because she wasn't encumbered by party politics. Um, so, yeah, greatest respect. And, yeah, I agree with the statement that if that was... The, if Margot's philosophy or the way that she perceived the world was yeah. uh, built into the Scottish Parliament in every candidate, it would be one. Of, it would be the single best parliament in the world as far as I'm concerned. So I do want to ask a question mm -hmm. uh, based on something that no one will understand except the, the few people that were at the FCE debate. But I asked a question at that, at the hosting, sorry, and it was about the internet. Yes. And Linda Holt said something and you very vis uh, visibly <laughs> didn't agree with what she said. Do you want right. to go on a wee bit about that? Uh, yeah, what she said is that uh, uh, fibre uh, fiber broadband is a redundant technology, and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, the reason I say that is that uh, wireless technology is, is great. It's great for being on the move and things like that. However, its resiliency isn't very good. You cannot... Uh, and I say this as somebody that used to work in that industry. Um, I, I used to be a broadband technician. Um, 
you cannot beat physical pipes and physical lines under the ground in terms of resiliencies, particularly in a state of emergency or in a critical time. Um, Wi-Fi transmitters need to be above ground. That means they're susceptible to a wide range of different things from interference to uh, inclement weather to there's a lot of different things that can affect them. Uh, a physical pipe under the ground uh, has a uh, has the ability that it is protected under the ground. Um, at the moment, the wires are crap. Excuse my French, but that's just the fact. But they by transitioning to full fiber, um, we end up with you can you end up with speeds three hundred. Or right now they're they're trialing uh, new broadband technology, which is up to one thousand meg. Yep. straight to the house, uh, FTTH. So there will always be a place for fibre. And you have to remember something else as well. All of these Wi-Fi transmitters for your 5G, for your 4G, um, for uh, for your 4G and for your 5G are all terminated to fibre optic lines. That's how they get the, the, that's how they get the uh, internet connection in the first place. So fibre is a technology that has to be invested in. Uh, and we really need to think differently about how we invest in that technology here in Scotland because the investment and the way that we do it is garbage, as I said, during those hustings. So, yeah. so that, that is another uh, place where I'm, I'm quite happy to show my bias and that you're one of the only people that has ever answered that question properly. Everybody else says simply, yes, I agree with uh, internet speeds being higher. It's like, yeah, but... I need I need more than that, yeah. Because even when they say high speed internet, they mean like twenty megs, and then you still got like less than one up. So so it's it's, it's kind of hard to to justify uh, when they say super speeds. The the issue the the issue with super speeds we we three hundred meg and one thousand is the standard, and, and you know we pride ourselves on oh we've got forty meg up and maybe if you're lucky five meg. Uh, sorry, uh, forty meg down, and maybe if you're lucky, f- five meg up. Hmm. But the fact uh, the fact remains with that technology is its pants. Uh, Korea is one example. After Korea was flattened during yep. the war, they decided to rebuild, and when they rebuilt, they actually made fiber part of the rollout. So we're talking technology that's been around since the seventies and eighties, um, which is now easier to adapt to modern uh, technology at either end because the fiber is already in the ground. The issue we have in Scotland is not about rolling out fibre. The issue we have, sorry, it's not about the technology. The technology is there. The technology is great. The problem we have in Scotland is BT Openreach and the private companies. On one hand, you have BT Openreach who are uh, seek money to uh, an increase in bills and money in order to be able to roll out a fibre network that's actually a generation behind what we should have. Um, by the time they get part of it done, there's a new technology on the market. And then they start to roll that one out. And then by the time they get that partially done, a new technology comes out. So it's this constantly trying to keep up. And the reason they're constantly trying to keep up is because they have to dig up every street in order to put those pipes and cables into the ground. Now, Usually what happens is they ask for money from Parliament. We end up with an extra couple of quid on our phone bill. And those that are in rural areas end up paying for the upgrades in the large cities um, the, who, get, who get the new technology. Uh, but then BT after saying that they'll do every home, then turn around and say, actually, this is economically unviable and this is economically unviable. And either try to stiff for more money or 
um, they end up in a situation whereby uh, they simply just disregard the area completely. Anybody that's not cable has to go through the open reach network. So open reach has a monopoly on this and they're not doing the rollout fast enough. On the other side of the coin, your likes of your Virgin Cable and all that sort of stuff, they are limited because they have to look at an area with, are we going to make a loss or are we going to make a profit? Uh, and in order to make a profit, because they have to dig up every single street in the country uh, to put it down, they concentrate on highly populated areas where they're going to get maximum bang for the buck. If they try to do rural areas, they'd end up spending more money rolling out this technology um, and the end result would be that they would actually make a loss. And no private company is willing to do it to make a loss. So we have to identify the issue here. And the major issue is how we roll those services out. Uh, and digging every street is not the way to do it. So the investment that the Scottish government needs to make is not in the technology. It's in the, the way we carry the technology for all utilities. My idea is pretty simple. As we are repairing the roads, digging them up, we put massive conduits uh, under the ground uh, on every single street. And then it's a simple case of the utility providers open a hatch, go down into a hole and simply drag the cable through and they can do an entire street in less than a day. Um, and when a new technology comes in, well, it's as simple as going down, cutting the wire at both ends and pulling through a new wire. There's no need to dig up streets. So that's good from a, a standpoint that they're not damaging the roads every time they dig up because the infrastructure's underneath the ground for them to roll it without actually having to damage anything. That saves costs for the councils. And if, if the money was to come from the Scottish government uh, to the local councils to be able to invest in that sort of technology, there's nothing to stop them, the councils, from leasing those pipeways to the companies. Because the companies are going to be saving because they're not having to pay to dig up the roads every time. So they'd be more willing to look at it from a cost-effective point of view. Hey, I know what we'll do. We'll simply use the existing conduits. We'll spend a bit of money in leasing the space. That will save more money than we otherwise would because we're not having to pay to dig up the streets. Um, and just that infrastructure project itself would create massive amounts of jobs as it was being done over the next five or 10 years, uh, which will come in great for COVID recovery because you're creating jobs for people to go and lay those pipes under the ground. And as for new technologies, well, the minute they come on tap, bang, straight down the whole straight cable through job done. BT Openreach would then find itself in a bit of predicament because suddenly for the private companies, the your virgins and your energists and all that, uh, your Vodafones, suddenly it would become economically viable for them to be able to lay cables because they're not having to dig up the streets. So now Openreach have to step up their bloody game. And the reason they have to step up their game is because now they've got direct competition from the other providers. And that can only result at the end of the day in pretty much everybody in the country, regardless of whether you're in a rural area or whether you're in a city, getting the most up-to-date technology within the shortest time frame possible. And that can only be good from a business standpoint because companies will be able to access high-speed broadbands, whether they're in Langham in the borders or they're in Kearney Hill here or they're in Edinburgh or they're up in Aberdeen or they're in the sticks. Why? Because the technology would be so easy to run out. It's really that simple. You got anything to ask, Stephen, or will I just carry on? I'm cool, carry on, man. That's... So um, I'm wary of time. I hate the fact we've only got 40 <laughs> minutes, so we'll just jump straight in it. Let's talk on independence. You're a pro-independence. 
Yeah, you could say that. Uh, yeah. you're, you're a bit, you're a bit <laughs> on one side of the fence more than the other. Oh yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Well, you know, sometimes this with I'm not. I'm kidding. No, it's probably uh, if I'm one shot, um, one step off painting my face with a salt tire. <laughs> so it's probably the best. You've way got the you've got the Scottish uh, flag guitar in the background. Obviously, we kind of see that on yeah. the thing, but I, it's there. It's there for anybody listening. I'm after pick a fight. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no, the brave heart sportsman. <laughs> right, so, uh, so you've got big, big news today. You've got you've got news today. I don't know how big you would consider it to be. Well, it was a neutral. Uh, it, it was a neutral um, decision from the court. They decided not to opine on the the constitutional question, um, and that is something that we're we're going to have to consider. Obviously, one of the main reasons I'm running for Holyrood is to be able to give me the standing to reinforce that case when we go to the next stage. I'm not going to go into details for the next stage for obvious reasons because we have to consider the opinion that was delivered by the court today. We have to go through it uh, and we have to decide where we're going next. What I will say, without going into too much detail, is election to Holyrood would certainly assist the case. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm loath to try and bring politics into the court case. So right. okay. uh, I'll put that to one side. One thing we did do, though, is strike a big victory for the, the little guy in the case today. Um, at paragraph 70 of the, the ruling, um, the judges went into the cost of uh, bringing this sort of litigation forward. Um, the, there was a, a, a review that was done many years ago uh, called the Gill Review, uh, and it effectively cut the common person off of the kneecaps from being able to access the courts, and it cut off access to justice for a lot of people, put a lot of barriers in front of people, uh, not least court, uh, not in least court, not in the least court costs, I should say. Um, sorry, I got tripped up by my own sentence structure there. Um, in terms of costs, uh, it pretty much made the courts an exclusive area for people of means, people that had money. Um, and the Lords, in our decision, and we were really surprised to see it, decided at paragraph 70 to take a swing at that. Uh, that that uh, sort of what's the word infection in the Scottish court system that's been uh, preventing uh, real access to justice for the common person. They decided to say no, this needs to be reviewed. Um, our counsel was flabbergasted when she read it. So, from that standpoint, that last paragraph by taking that swing, that is a big win for for. Um, public law cases and a big win for the, the common person to be able to get access to cheap, fast and easy justice and, you know, access to justice uh, with, with cases and things like that. So while the main decision was neutral, that was a big win. So, yeah, I was I was ha really happy to see that. As for the rest of the case, we're busy regrouping. We'll decide what we're going to do. And then obviously I'll update uh, people as we move forward. So. Could you talk a wee bit about what your plans for independence would be when you're elected or if you're elected? If I'm elected, well, my yeah. plan is like quite What your preferences would be? Uh, my, my, well, my position has been quite clear on this. Uh, 5th of May 2022 is the date of the council elections. My uh, attitude is that if we can safely hold an election... On the 5th of May 2022, just like we're doing right now, then we can add another ballot slip to that election 
uh, asking the question, should Scotland be an independent country? Simple as that. There is plenty of time between now and then. It is, it is almost one, it'll be, by the time this election is over, it will be one year to the day. Um, that is more than enough time to pass the necessary legislation and have any rammy with the UK government that needs to be had. Um, it's more than enough to pass the legislation and it's more enough time to campaign and get out there and, and batter home in uh, the question of independence. Anything after that, I'm seriously concerned that it's going to result in the decimation of Scotland's economy because we will be put on the back burner with everything when it comes to the Westminster government. Uh, we're going to go into a post-COVID recovery and you're not telling me that Scotland will be anywhere near the top of that list. They're going to look after London City and their cronies. That's it. Um, my concern is that they do so much damage to the Scottish economy that it really wouldn't be able to stand on its own two feet when it's independent. Exactly as Thatcher did. Because that's what she was going hell for leather to try and do. Uh, to create a position whereby if we had, uh, you know, if we had voted for independence back then when she was in charge... Um, we would have had a, a situation where we wouldn't have been able to survive. And uh, Boris Johnson is worse than Margaret Thatcher. So uh, uh, we need to act. We need to act quickly. Uh, independence and post-COVID recovery are not exclusive. They're not an exclusive. They have to be linked and they have to. It's, uh, the only way I can see us fully recovering from the situation with COVID and certainly Brexit as well is by becoming an independent country. And my preference is to have that vote on the 5th of May, 2022. Well, uh, that's great. And we've just got a fantastic gift from Zoom. They've removed the 40-minute time limit for this group meeting. So I've been in a rush there. They need to be. So anything else you want to discuss? I wonder why that came up. I was confused. Like I was like, what? Like, okay. What? <laughs> I, I, was, I was expecting a five-minute countdown. to be like, right, hurry the bug up. Get going. Uh, but it's not coming up now, so is there anything else you would like to bring up? Well, it's up to yourselves. You guys are the ones asking the question. I'm accountable. You guys are the voters. I'm, the, uh, I'm uh, accountable to you guys, not the other way around. <laughs> is there anything you would like to ask Martin to make to ask him to, well, to make? Well, to be honest, I was ready to go on to my, my two-minute thing. But, uh... All right. Well, we could do that. But, but, we, we, to be fair, we did come into this. Process. We did come into this setting up for a 40-minute podcast yes, and then it told and me five minutes before you have that it was going to be a 40-minute podcast. Aye. aye. So we've kind of got through everything. <laughs> so so <laughs> this is a, an easy chance for you. Is there anything else on the back burner? Some uh, policy proposals? Again, you've got things about uh, carers. Oh, yeah, carers. Did is you a want to talk about that me. a wee bit? Yeah, carers is a massive one for me. Um I am an unpaid carer, so I, I'm not approaching this from the point of view of I think I know what carers want. I'm approaching this from the point of view uh, I'm sick and tired of being kicked as a carer. Um, the fact of the matter is that what's happened in the last year, especially, uh, it's been happening for the last three decades, but what's happened in the last year is actually quite disgusting. Um, as a carer, let's talk about benefits just for a second. As a carer, you get carer's allowance. Um, and carer's allowance is not enough to survive on. So this typically supplement it with either income support or they supplement it with universal credit if it's a newer claim. Yeah. Um, if somebody's on income support and carer's allowance, then you know they've been doing the role of a carer for a, quite a long time, um, years. So their financial status is a lot worse than a new carer would be simply because of the combined toll that being a carer has taken on them over the years. Yet, 
they weren't even afforded the twenty pound COVID uplift from the UK government. If you're on income support, you didn't get it. No, the universal credit guys got it, but the income support guys didn't get it. Uh, Teresa Coffey made some vague uh, comment in the comments about it being due to system issues. Um, but uh, when it came time to uh, when it came time, you know, to to say, hey, you really have to be giving this to those on income support. It's just disappeared from existence. Mm-hmm. Um, no person on income support that is a carer has been provided the twenty pound COVID uplift That's at me. all. Oh, None. Um, and I say that as one of those people that was denied it. And you know, a lot of people out there would accuse me of saying, "Oh, you just want to fill your own pockets." But let me just go through. If you don't mind, if you guys have got time, let me just go through what happens at the start of every week for me. Right, I get. Uh, in Scotland, we're a little bit better off because we get carer supplement um, every six months, but that's still not enough. The average carer is on £115 a week or thereabouts, um, give or take a few pennies either side. Okay, now we're not classified in the same terms as um, private or public sector carers, so we have no right to the equipment we need to do our job. So for me, my mother has uh, advanced multiple sclerosis. She's bedbound. Okay, so I have to deal with all her personal care and all that sort of stuff. I do have a carer comes in during the day, but at nights uh, and most of the, uh, and the rest of the time, um, that's not within those ha- uh, four half hour appointments. It's me that's dealing with it. So I'm effectively I'm a carer for twenty two hours a day, right? So to do my job, I have to put a set of gloves on when I feed her to stop. You know, it's basic infection control. Yeah. Uh, when I deal with our personal care, I obviously have to change said gloves uh, because you can't cross-contaminate. When I give her medication, that has to be changed because the medication comes after her personal care. Um, so straight away, that's three sets of gloves for just one 15-minute session. Okay, so I, it's not unusual for me to go through 200 gloves a week. Easy, okay? Yeah. Um, I also have to wear one of the plastic aprons when I'm doing the food and things like that. That's basic infection control. Um, most carers would say, yeah, that's not really necessary, but in COVID-19 lands, yes, most definitely is. Um, so I can easily go through um, eight, bo- eight boxes of, of, of gloves in a month, no problem whatsoever. I have no right to get them provided to me at all. So I have to buy them myself. Okay, so I can easily spend in a month, um, I I can easily spend close to 60 quid straight away just on gloves. Okay, that's one week's carer's allowance. Gone, just like that. I then have to pay for all my food and normal stuff that I I would normally get as a person in order to live. Okay, so my carer's allowance for the entire, entire month gets completely wiped out. I mean, totally wiped out. Income support, again... Um, there's a lot of other things I have to buy um, for to both to perform a role and to survive. So each month I run a deficit of roughly about a uh, hundred pounds a month. So over the year, that's you know it comes to about twelve hundred pounds. Most carers in the UK will admit to being in at least six thousand pounds of debt. And the the carers UK who did that study with the six thousand pounds of debt um, kind of missed a bit out uh, when they did it. People would assume, oh, six thousand pounds of debt. That's not really much. But the reason they only have six thousand pounds of debt is because that's as much as they can get 
by that point, their their finances are so destroyed that they couldn't apply for any other credit or any other form of debt. They're forced to turn to your uh, payday loan providers, the loan sharks, as we call them, or the type of guys that, you know, if you don't make your payments, they take a baseball bat to your kneecaps. So they're disadvantaged from that point of view as well. Financially, it takes a massive toll. Now, in this pandemic, um, I went into lockdown on the 23rd of March last year. I have had seven days out of the house since then. Why? Because I'm protecting myself from getting COVID. Because if I come back and give it to my other mother, she will die. And the reason I know she'll die is because she has a do not resuscitate order in her medical files applied by doctors. So if she were to catch COVID, the best she would get is some oxygen. Mm-hmm. Simple as that. Okay. So in order to protect her, I, I, I've had to stay in the house. Now, because I'm not classified as housebound, even though I do have my own disability, the doc- I, I, I can't get to the doctors and the doctors can't get to me. Sorry, the doctors won't come to me because I'm not classified as housebound. In fact, I put a tweet out about this today. So right at this very minute, I am being refused the vaccine for COVID-19. The reason I'm being refused the vaccine is because the district nurses, because of a local policy in Fife, won't come to the house to give me the vaccine. And I can't leave the house to go to them for two reasons. One, it would mean I would have to get on two forms of public transport to get to them with no vaccine in my system, which means I wouldn't be protected. And then two, coming back the way, bearing in mind it takes three weeks for the vaccine just to give you the 50% protection, yeah? And then I would have to repeat that again in three months' time to go and get the second vaccine with only 50% protection and then come all the way back and it would be three weeks before I would get any protection from that. So they won't come to me, so I won't get the vaccine and I can't get to them. The second reason I can't get to them is because I can't leave my mother. If I leave my mother, nobody's here to look after her and we're talking about somebody that can't clothe, feed, uh, or deal with any of her own personal care. You can't leave it. If I was to leave her, the first thing that would happen is I would get a chap at the door from social services and I'd get busted uh, for abandoning somebody that I was supposed to look after. So I'm stuck in a situation where I'm stuck in the house to try and protect my mother from COVID, but I can't get the COVID vaccine because I can't get to the surgery uh, and the surgery won't come to me. And that's not just a case of the COVID vaccine. It's also a case of Blood tests. I'm currently undergoing investigations for a possible issue with my heart. And I need blood tests. And every time I phone the surgery, the surgery turns around and says, we can't come out because you're not classified as housebound. This should have been considered in the policies that uh, 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 be, f- with regards to the vaccine. How exactly does a carer get vaccinated when they can't get out of the house? But no provision for that has been made whatsoever. In fact, I raised it with Jason Leach, the, the CMO for Scotland this afternoon, on exactly this issue. That's just one thing. Uh, simultaneously, you've got the likes of Boris Johnson saying, we love carers. They give up work to... No, we don't give up work for anything. This is our work. This is our job. We do exactly the same role as public and private sector carers. It is exactly the same uh, job in every way, shape and form. The difference between me and a public and private sector carer is that the law, the legislation which underpins carers allowance, specifically designates me... <coughs> excuse me, as not being a worker in order to avoid them having to give me workers' rights. Yes, so the law specifically classifies me as something other than a worker. Now, worker and employee have two different meanings. All employees are workers, but not all workers are employees. And it depends on your contractual relationship with your employer. But I don't have... 
the the UK government says you need at least 35 hours worth of care uh, to be providing at least 35 hours worth of care in order to qualify for carers' allowance. Um, uh, on what planet is that not a contract of employment? They're dictating hours that you work in order for remuneration. But I'm not designated as a worker, so I'm not even uh, entitled to uh, a basic wage. Um, I'm not entitled to pensions. I'm not entitled to days off. I'm not entitled to sick leave. I'm not entitled to uh, any form of assistance whatsoever uh, in, when things go peak tongue. Uh, I, I don't even, I'm not even entitled to a workplace pension. So right now, all I'm doing is uh, I'm getting my insurance stamp for my national pension, which will probably not exist by the time I retire at 68 uh, or 70, depending on what it's going to be. 80, 90. Yeah, I'll probably be chasing it. And I'm not getting the option to have a workplace pension or build anything up like that. So right now, what I'm looking at is a situation when I retire, I'm going to be in as much poverty then as I will be now as a carer. Um, and it's all because I'm not defined as a worker in any sort of law. There's no right. I don't have a workers' union, so who the hell is going to stand up for me? Sure, there are advocacy groups out there for carers, but we don't have workers' union or anything like that. We rely on the public to try and advocate for us. And let's face it, I'm sorry, but the public's been doing a pretty naff job of that. And I count myself in that as well, by the way, before I was a carer. So only now that I am a carer, I understand exactly what it's like. So you're in a situation where you're isolating, you're getting no assistance, and you've got politicians on the TV saying, oh, we love carers, and they just don't seem to love them enough to actually do anything for them. Yeah, uh, it, it is the original work fair. That's what it is. Paid carers are the lowest paid benefit claimants in the UK. Uh, in Scotland, they're paid slightly higher, but they're paid the same as job seekers. Now, jo I, I don't mean to denigrate job seekers. Let me make that clear right now. But job seekers is an out-of-work benefit. So in other words, by upgrading the amount of money that they get to the same as job seekers, what the Scottish government is signalling is that I'm not working. <laughs> and that is it's just, you know, it, it's really frustrating at, at that point. What I would like to see is carers' allowance being abolished and universal credit being abolished. I want to see carers folded into this new national care service that's being created by the Scottish National Party as uh, workers, not as employees. So uh, in some jobs, obviously, you get a wage, uh, which is waged employees, so you get an hourly rate. But you also get salaried employees. Like a lot of managers are salaried employees. They get a fixed amount each year. Uh, and that's it, whether they work 60 hours a week or whether they work 30 hours a week, they're salaried. I would like to see a salaried rate for every carer in Scotland based on the 35 hours a week that they are required to work in order to get carer's allowance at the moment. And that might seem like a tall order, but it's actually not. Um, if you fold them into the National Care Service, several things happen. Firstly, they would get full remuneration. So... You can take the income support and the carer's allowance that they're currently getting, and that would immediately pay for 50% of the wage that they would get at full rate, yeah? Uh, pay them uh, the living wage. So that would immediately pay for half of it. Um, because they're being paid a proper wage, immediately they're paying tax. So that's an additional 19%. So now you're up to 69% of this funded. Um, 
you also end up with a hundred and a hundred thousand to hundred fifty thousand extra people spending in the economy at full rate, like a normal employee. So they are creating extra um, need for goods and services, which in turn creates extra employment, which in turn generates revenue from the extra jobs that are created. So effectively, carers would become a stimulus package for post-COVID recovery. Yeah. So straight away, we can see that another 10% of that would now be funded. And now you're up to 79%. And then once you take away the costs that it currently takes to run the dual system, your income support and your carer's allowance, now you're getting into the 90%. So really all you would have to look for is an additional 10% to be able to fund this to happen. The carer with themselves would be classified as a worker, which is fantastic because now they're getting the recognition um, that they are a, a, an important part of society. And I would argue that they are because we can quantify it. We know that the contribution, contribution of the 2 million carers that work in the UK, unpaid carers, actually save the UK Treasury the equivalent of the budgets for the NHS in England, Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales combined. So in other words, if you didn't have unpaid carriers, the entire health and social care system would collapse overnight. It's that simple. You can We can quantify it. And with services being reduced as a result of COVID-19, unpaid carers' responsibilities have only increased, so the amount that they're saving the Treasury is also increased as well. So straight away, they're recognised as workers, they're given a, a, a pay packet, they're given a proper income, and they also get P60s and pay slips. So when they go to apply for credit, they afforded the same services as any other worker. When they go to apply for credit, they're not discriminated and written off as benefit claimants. Uh, so, you know, that will have a positive net effect on their psychological state as well as having a positive effect on their financial state as well. Combine all this together uh, and what you have is workers being classified as workers. Uh, it, it could work. It's bold. It's different. But at the same time as well, uh, What's the point in doing anything if you're not going to do it right? Scotland has the opportunity right now to lead on this. It could do it tomorrow. And the NCS being created, the National Care Service being created, affords exactly the opportunity for it to, for us to do it. Or we can continue to write off carers and simply push them to the side and proclaim that we love them and that we're going to put our arms around them while simultaneously stiffing them on a £20 a week uh, increase. Uh, to, to their benefits uh, while their own compatriots um, are, are getting that and leave them in poverty and desperation and isolation. There's no contest as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah, I mean, sorry, I apologise for talking at length about this and I apologise for, for, for uh, hogging the microphone, so to speak. But if I'm elected and I go into that chamber, I'm not going in there as pally pally, nice, nice, on this subject. I'm going in with the proverbial political baseball bat. I'm going to be screaming it from the rafters about the way that carers have been treated specifically in, during this pandemic as well. Um, it is one of my prime issues. And I'm not just talking about unpaid carers. I'm talking about uh, my, my public service and my uh, private sector brothers and sisters who have been royally stiffed during this, this outbreak as well. Um, but yeah, I'm passionate about that particular subject. I could talk it for great length, burn everybody's ears out, but um, people can be guaranteed that if I go into, if I make it to Holyrood next week, I will be screaming the place down on behalf of carers who have been sorely, 
sorely underrepresented in that place. And the one down south that will not be remain yeah. re- will not be named. Yeah. Well, you're absolutely welcome to talk. I mean, as I say, Zoom gave us a nice Christmas present and <laughs> allowed us to speak for longer than 40 minutes. Yeah, so, uh, aye, that was absolutely fine. So I know that you guys wanted to finish this, uh, well, you, the 40-minute interview, but yeah, um, every chance I get, I, I could talk at great length about carers and the way that they get stiffed. Um, and the problem is that most of this stuff is kept hidden. You never really hear the politicians talking about carers come election time, except when it's something that's morally, is it something that's advantageous to their, you know, their vote share. But the fact of the matter is that, look at the pandemic. You remember the sweatshops in the north of England during the pandemic when it was discovered that they were being paid three pound, four pound, and five pound. Yeah, yeah. You you had every single member of parliament lined up on the lawn of that parliament in front of the TVs declaring how it's worker exploitation, that they were being paid three, four and five pounds an hour. Well, I'm sorry to say most carers in the UK work more than 60 hours a week. And when you take their income and divide it by the number of just 60 hours, and that's conservative estimates, by the way, you you are led to one pound 89 per hour is what they're paid. So if it's exploitation in the, the, the workshops at three, four and five pound an hour, then what's happening to carers in this country is worker exploitation, but not worse, state-sponsored worker exploitation. And well, it needs I, addressed. I haven't went into this in as much detail as you did, but I did email our local... I don't think, I don't think she's your local rep, but uh, the local rep for this area, for Glenrothes, mm-hmm. uh, to, to ask about the, the Christmas bonus... Remember how carers were given a Christmas bonus, and I asked whether that would include unpaid carers, and th- there wasn't even like an issue where she was just like no, and I'm like why? Just like, These are people that you you keep saying that they matter and that they're saving money for Scotland, so that so you you give them more respect, but that's a bonus, actually it's mean, actually something. It's actually something I was angry about in the SNP manifesto. You read the SNP manifesto and what they're doing for unpaid carers, and you will see we might give uh, it's only a specific subsection of unpaid carers, and it says we might give them a ten pound uh, a week increase if we can be assured that Westminster won't call it back. Uh, we got an extra pay- We got an extra payment of carers supplement. Um, which was appreciated, but because of all the extra gloves and everything I was having to buy, do you know how long my carer, extra payment of carer supplement lasted? Holidays. No, no, it came in at uh, 11 minutes past three is when it came into my bank account. And with the things that I had to order in order to safeguard my mother with the pandemic, it was gone in less than 22 minutes. Yeah. Because that's another issue. They didn't put any price at, at the... I use the word personal care when describing it. Uh, and I think we can all understand what the word personal care means. Yeah. yeah. Uh, without being too crude. Now imagine doing it with no gloves. Yeah, that's what happened to us when this pandemic started, the UK government uh, diverted all PPE to the NHS. And I don't begrudge the NHS for that. You know, the, the guys in the front line deserve the deepest respects of everybody but no provision was made for carers. So we couldn't get gloves anymore. So I was left for weeks without it. And then when we could get gloves, 
There was no pricing controls established. So the price yeah. of a packet of gloves, we then had to deal with scalpers and the price of a packet of gloves shot up from about £3.50 or £4.50 to nearly £15 a pack. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, uh, cost, just to give you an example, I bought four boxes of gloves. Uh, this was when they first came on tap and it cost me £75. Jesus Christ. It got so bad with the hand sanitizer. Then, of course, you got all the idiots that decided to buy everything with the word antiseptic on it. Yeah. yeah. And antiseptic wipes are an important part of my role. It got that bad, I had to go out and buy the chemicals and make hand sanitizer myself. I have a 25, I had a 25 liter uh, barrel of hand sanitizer that I had to make to WHO specification myself. Um, I actually got that bad that I ended up actually having to hand out bottles of it to the other carers that come in to deal with my mum you know a couple of times a day i did uh, see that you were doing that yeah but that was yeah that was what happened we, we we're still getting scalped the the government have still put no provisions in place to protect us uh from being scalped on pp next time there's a there will be a third wave and when that happens again we'll get screwed again just like we did in the first wave and just like we did in the second wave and on it goes and the Tories don't care. And the reason the Tories don't care is because it's their mates making all the money off of the sell, scalping everybody for the PPE in the first place. So, yeah, what can you do? It's, uh, it's a sad situation. But yeah. the fact is we are classified as less than worthless. We're benefits claimants. And you try. I tried an experiment a couple of months ago where I put out two tweets. One of them was a meme with a bunny on it. And immediately after, I put out uh, a thread about carers. Right, the bunny got 150 retweets, and the one about carers got two. That's the state we're in in this country, uh, and it's not on. And the thing is, that we can't even go on strike like any other yeah. employee because if we did, we'd end up getting arrested and prosecuted for abandoning the people that were supposed to be caring. These uh, private carers, if private carers come in, if they're late or they don't turn up, it falls to the 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 unpaid carer to to fill that gap. Um, but we have no backup. If I fall sick, <laughs> yeah, I, I've got my own health difficulties. I have had my own health difficulties. But I fall ill tomorrow. There's nobody to replace me. Uh, there was an incident where one of the carers didn't turn up for one of the scheduled appointments my mum gets. This was during the, um, the, this was about six weeks ago. Um, and the care company phoned the council and uh, said, listen, we're not going to be able to get out to the house. And the council phoned me and assured me that somebody would come out. Nobody ever bothered turning up. And the reason they didn't turn up, and it was explained to me later, is because there was an unpaid carer in the house. So I had to stay, I stayed up for 36 hours. 36 hours. Um, simply because of the way things worked. There was no point in me going back to sleep. So, but that, that's what happens, and it happens daily, and it happens all the time. The provision of services are garbage. I'm sorry to say, it's just a fact. It's, and the SNP have tried to make some progress towards integrating health and social care and providing other services, but it doesn't go far enough. Um, I mean, if we were to be folded into the NCS as employees, if we fell ill, we wouldn't be phoning the council to try and possibly maybe... What we would do is phone the, SA, the, the NCS... Um, HR department and say, I'm ill, I need somebody to come out, and they would schedule another carer to come out in the same yeah. manner as they would if one of their own employees was off. Um, 
scheduling for holidays, same thing. We would book it on their own system. And so, you know, they would schedule appropriately based on, you know, the, the staff that they have, etc. Uh, you know, there's a lot of benefits to it. So uh, from an administration co po cost point of view as well, it would be cheaper than the current makeup of health and social care. So, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, we're screwed on a daily basis. Quite frankly, I'm sick of it. Uh, you can probably see it on my face that it hacks me off. But I have no choice. I have no choice. I'm carer uh, for my mother. And I wouldn't change that for the world. I love my mother a bit. It's simple as that. She was a nurse for 20 years. Uh, she taught me everything I know to be a carer. She, I think, I'll be brutally honest with you, I think she was kind of preparing me for this day right. um, because she knew what was coming. But it, it still remains that as a carer, I have that insight that people in Parliament don't have. I know where the pitfalls are. I see it. And in combination with the work that I do on a voluntary basis... We're helping people with DWP tribunals and all that sort of stuff. Um, I, I pretty much get to see the worst of the worst of the worst that happens when the system fails people. If people get to me for my assistance, then every other mechanism that should have protected them has failed. Um, and they've had to turn to somebody that you know deals outside of the system in order to try and get some sort of a semblance of order. Um, but it's atrocious. Uh, if I lived in Germany right now, if I was a carer in Germany, Germany pays their carers about 1,300 euros a month. That's what it is. Uh, and it's not just Germany. There's many other countries in Europe as well do the same. Westminster, on the other hand, because carers allowance is a fallover from Westminster. Yeah. Um, 400 and odd pounds a month and a much more expensive economy than most of the European countries. So you are, you're stiffed from square one. Um, you know, so this is going to, I hope this doesn't sound the way it's going to come out with a violin, right? You know, that I'm not saying this for sympathy. Uh, I'm simply saying it to highlight the points that I've made. See if I get elected to parliament next week. What will happen is my father will assume my role as carer and there'll be a bit of jigging around. If I, I become a parliamentarian, a, a chunk of my wage will be going to pay for a carer to come in to fill my role. That's what's going to happen. So straight away, I'll be creating a job by having a, a carer in here for the time that I'm, I'm not in the house. But my financial situation of being a carer, um, on the first day of parliament, you might not see me in a suit. You might oh, not yeah, see me with a shirt and tie. Yeah. And the reason you, and I'll call it out now, the reason you won't see me in a shirt and tie the first day of Parliament, uh, you'll probably see me in a set of black jeans and a T-shirt, is because I don't have the means to buy one. Being a carer. She uh, uh, doesn't dress in carer's clothes. Just be like, well, that's what I'm here as. I, well, either that or I can always get the uh, Barney the Dinosaur outfit I had from two Halloweens ago and just go to Please do that. Together. I will, I will that buy you a suit. That, that is now your suit for doing that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's not me trying to bring on the violin or anything like that. Mm. It's a case of... Uh, it's the reality first, of life. It is. The first month in Parliament for me is going to be quite hard because I've got to try and find a way to transition from being a carer in, back into uh, the workforce with no support. So... Uh, I'll have transportation back and forth because transportation, you claim it back. You don't get given it and it is an advance. So 
I'm going to have to find ways of getting to Parliament and I'm going to have to, you know, find ways of changing the clothes that I wear from T-shirts and a T-shirt to, to suit and all that sort of stuff. Uh, although I might just go with a T-shirt just to rebel against the man, you know, um, and stick with a T-shirt. Um, but people don't realise that. That's one of the major issues. A lot of people are trapped as carers because they have no other way out because there's no mechanism to, to help them get back on their feet. And when they get to retirement age, because they don't have enough of a stamp on their, uh, and they don't have a private pension, they're facing poverty after uh, pension age as well because they've not been able to build up a work record. And you try transitioning back into the workforce. Now, I'm an engineer. I'm a trained engineer. But I've been that... Um, stagnant because I'm a carer that my training is now obsolete I'll have to retrain again but there's no mechanism for that so an engineer if I'd been working as an engineer for 10 years I would leave and become an engineer now however I'll probably end up stacking shelves you know yeah. like most parliamentarians when they finish up at the end of their career mm. <coughs> but yeah. I think what we'll do is we'll leave it at that Martin man uh, and we'll let you go. That's uh, that's been I, perfect, man. Oh man, I've got. Uh, uh, in fact, you've actually nailed the timing. I've got to go and uh, uh, deal <laughs> with my caring responsibilities. So, I personal care with gloves. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> very well. Cheers very much for coming on. Thanks, Thanks very much for your time, guys. I'm. I think I'm going to need it. But take care, guys, and I'll speak to nice you soon. One, eh? Nice Goodbye. one. Bye. Sure.